Hi there, I'm Josh Heath. What follows is the beginning of Deployed and Back Again, A Fobbit's Tale, my deployment memoir. If you are receiving this, you probably are a macker on Kickstarter, and I want to thank you for being a part of that journey with me. This memoir is explicit. I will use a lot of swear words. I will talk about some things that are tough to hear about. So please be aware of that and prepared for it. Um, this may not be the thing to listen to in the car with the kids, but that is up to you and their tolerance level. I hope you enjoy it. If you have any feedback, please send me a message. Happy to talk about it. Introduction, Deployed and Back Again, A Fobbit's Tale by Joshua Heath. What follows is my personal journey through a deployment with the U.S. Army to Camp Liberty, Iraq. Each of these stories is a memory, or in a few rare cases, a memory of someone close to me, which I've made my own. As memories, some of these stories are imperfect reflections of reality. I deployed from September 2008 to September 2009, and most of the stories are from that year. I tell some stories about my life in general, as they are relevant to my deployment, and each story is a vignette, a moment trapped in amber. Some are funny, some are sad, and some show the conflicted feelings I had and currently have about what happened around me. Unlike many war stories, there isn't a lot in this book you might expect. You won't find stories of bullets or firefights here. You will find my conflicted ramblings, frustrations, and choices. You'll also find memories that I'm not proud of. You'll find thoughts, actions, and decisions that I'm embarrassed by. You'll find memories that I'm intensely proud of as well, or that I still find funny. You will also find a natural nomad trapped within a square mile of dirt and dust. A lot of what happened to me during this deployment informed what I needed to change in myself and why I've changed so drastically in some ways as a human being. At the same time, because these memories have sat with me for almost a decade, I haven't always looked at them critically. I've told them as I remember them, and that memory often has layered anger, frustration, or despair. That memory may also have laughter that only makes sense with context, and hopefully that context is clear by taking this work as a whole. There are lessons I've learned writing and recording this, but some of those stories are simply a story of what happened. They may be funny, they may teach, but they may simply be as well. I initially wrote this in 2016, during and after NaNoWriMo. It's now 2019, and time keeps rolling on. Fobbit. It is not war, only the so-called safe walls. It's never the mortars that wake me, only the all-clear alert. It's the allies that slur not you, only those you respect. It is the dust that rises, only settling on the freshly cleaned deck. It's not the feeling of loneliness, only the experience of silence. It is not the tension gripping, only the firm grasp to restrain oneself. It is not the frayed connection, only the anger of others to those they love. It's not the gym, only the psychologist of the fit. It's not war, only the unsettled middle ground. Dust Settles, Chapter 1 Here's the thing. War is hell. The part Sherman forgot to mention? Hell is different for everyone. For me, it was being stuck inside a single square mile for a long, tedious year. I was born a nomad, destined to travel the highways and byways and live with my house on my back. Hell was a year where I was grounded, stuck, frozen in time, place, and progress. My life had become a surreal comedy. It was my fault, too, on multiple levels, but that story needs to wait. 
I remember sitting there, thinking about everything that brought me to that point. I was seated in full body armor, an M16 held in my lap. In my head, all along the watchtower by Hendrix played, mocking my ridiculousness. I looked out the window to see the brown, drab desert scenery staring back. It was a sea of drab browns on drab gray, highlighted by dark browns. The monotony of the colors was overwhelming, like Dorothy's Kansas if it had been made of dust. We passed the dining hall, the blast walls, and a series of similar-looking pads, areas owned by various units staging important missions in and around the Baghdad region. Finally, we pulled into the PX. That's the post exchange for those not in the know. It's the military equivalent of Walmart. The white scrubby bus I was on came to a halt. The Indian man that was driving waved me off. I was seemingly the only idiot that seemed to feel he needed to go to the PX right then and there while we were instructed to wear our full battle rattle. We had a few RPG attacks over the last few days, and intelligence indicated that more attacks were imminent. That's rocket-propelled grenade. Or someone up the line, maybe, thought it was funny to watch us walk around sweating half to death. I'm not convinced the second was unlikely. I toddled off the rickety half-plastic contraption and stood looking at the PX. The flimsy bus door smacked the side of my body armor, even as I turned sideways. The PX was open, so was the Burger King shack, the Cinnabon, and the various other shops and stalls. The bazaar was closed, though. Shame, too, because I was sort of in the mood to peruse a bunch of crap I didn't need and would likely never want. It was a day for capitalistic nihilism. I was after two things, a Whopper and an iPod. The iPod I had was dead, and I needed music. I didn't need the damn Whopper, but since I was there, why not buy it, right? This sort of thinking is half the reason I'm fat in post-army life. So I marched over to the PX to buy the iPod first. The guards at the doors checked my CAC, that's the military ID card, and I was allowed inside. There before me was a scene for the ages. If you like your scenes to be covered in a light layer of dust and crap you might find in a Kmart on the verge of an out-of-business sale. Wandering around the building were a few other soldiers, airmen, and at least one marine doing the same sort of shuffle I was. That was the weirdest thing. The cement floor wasn't perfectly flat, so you had to sort of amble like a pain calf around the shop. Covered head to toe in protective gear, we were shopping for bullshit you'd look for on a lazy Saturday in the middle of summer. I decided to skip buying another lawn chair. I had one. I didn't need another that trip. While I was waiting to check out, I stood in the one line that was open. The civilian working the register counted out 45 cents in AFES, Army and Air Force Exchange Services, POGS, for the person in front of me. POGS, for those of you who were not children in the early 90s, are hard, round, cardboard circle. Kind of hard to describe if you've never seen one. The guy receiving the change turned and looked me in the eye. He was six feet, if not an inch more. His left eye was patched over. He'd taken a beating from something. To be honest, I didn't want to know. Being deployed and being in the military in general left me thankful for the body I had, because you frequently encountered folks missing a few parts. Here, he said through gritted teeth, I won't need these fucking things where I'm going. I accepted them with a nod. Good luck, mate. I didn't say anything else. I didn't want to know, really. I didn't really have anything else to say. I figured he was headed back home, but he... Might have been headed for his own version of hell. The whole scenario was fucking surreal to a degree I don't think I can honestly convey. There I was, standing next to a candy rack in full military body armor, helmet and all, getting handed a bunch of paper change by a guy that had taken an explosion and walked away. He was whole enough not to have been medically evacuated immediately, but hurt enough to be seriously messed up. 
The smell of military clothing is distinct. Hard to describe if you've never encountered it. It's a bit like a mix of gunpowder and rat poison, and it wafted by at that moment. And I felt like I was in some new circle of hell. I paid for my damn iPod and grabbed my Whopper. No way was I going to miss that meal. I ate the thing there, got back on the bus, and headed back to my chew. Those are small trailers repurposed as rooms. My job was to make popcorn, time people's use of computers, and enforce a time limit on phone calls. Other days, I sat in a gym, cleaning equipment that was covered in three inches of dirt and grime. I was a building attendant. This is not what I was trained for by any stretch of the imagination. So, not only was I stuck in nomad's hell, I was given a job that was completely irrelevant and redundant. That's the thing about hell. As I was saying before, for some people, hell is the fight, the sweat, the blood pouring on the ground during a firefight, the classic pictures of war. For me, hell was a year of sitting around in a pool of boredom, self-loathing, and petty anger. War is hell, and hell is different for every person. Chapter 2. My Faith and Why It Matters Let's digress a little. This story might contextualize some of the other stories that are to come, and some of how they impacted me, some of how they still fit into my mind. We'll get back to the hell of the deployment soon. Don't worry. I'm a heathen, and by that I don't mean a godless atheist. Quite the opposite. I believe in many gods. Heathenry is a religion based on the religious cultural worldview of pre-Christian Northern Europe and informed by significant study into the entire Indo-European Milo of religious systems. In short, we are a polytheistic, ancestor-worshipping, land-honoring, modern reconstructionist, neo-pagan religious group. That's not particularly short, is it? Our last census estimates that there are probably no more than 50,000 of us worldwide, though maybe a bit more than that. Yes, we worship Thor, Odin, etc. No, not the comic book or the movie gods. And no, we're not modern-day Vikings, even though some wish they were. Yes, many of us drink mead. I think you should too. It's delicious when made by a master meter. And many heathens serve in the military because we believe that serving and protecting community is a sacred duty. We also staunchly believe in a gift for a gift, which is an essential religious truth for us. My wife and I run one of the few organizations that actively supports military heathens and their family members. The Open Halls Project Incorporated is a nonprofit organization which is currently based in Maryland. We started the organization after my deployment. We offer support to any heathen looking for community when they move from one duty station to another. And part of the reason we started the organization was my deployment and my generally good experience with the religious community I interacted with while I deployed. In 2017, we finally had our faith recognized by the entire Department of Defense. Now, partly due to the efforts of the Open Halls Project, Ausatru, Heathen, Druid, and hundreds more religious and faith preferences are now available to service members. This was a major event. It was huge for us, and it was one of the things that we were working so strongly for as a goal for so long. We're super proud of it. Going to Iraq was an interesting religious experience for me in a variety of ways which is probably one of the strangest takeaways a person could have from a deployment. First, I got a chance to attend one of the largest open circles in the U.S. military. The open circle model is a pan-pagan system designed to support a variety of neo-pagan faiths, including Wicca, Ausatru, Religio Romana, etc. This particular circle was sponsored by Sacred Well, 
from their website. The Sacred Well Congregation International is a universalist, independent, non-evangelical Wiccan church. We are organized for the purpose of conducting and promoting religious worship on alternative spiritual paths. Unquote. They are one of the oldest Wiccan groups to offer explicit military support, and they deserve a lot of credit for it. The open circle model is eclectic and encompassing because it's been easier to get members from various traditions, rather than having specific religious functions for two to three individuals who agree on a specific form of neo-traditional modern polytheism. This sort of pan-pagan solidarity has been a great boon for service members, but there are a lot of potential issues with it as well. The erasure of difference or the assumption of similarity are two, and though they sound similar, they're slightly different issues that I've seen and interacted with. To me, my faith in the honor of duty was a part of why I chose to enlist. It wasn't the only reason, or even the primary reason, but it was a reason. My faith was part of why and how I met my wife. It was a driver for me to make the changes I made in my life, and it helps to sustain me today. This isn't the normal type of feel-good, spiritual, pick-me-up sort of memoir, but I think knowing this helps to contextualize who I am and why the way I am. Chapter 3. Where Should We Start? For some reason, the unit I was in was tasked with taking over the mission of a unit half our size. That unit had deployed with 90 people to perform convoy protection missions, and they were acting as basic support staff in other functions, and they did those missions well. Our unit took over those missions, and we brought close to 160 people. Think about that for a moment. We had nearly double the manpower of the unit we were replacing, and originally, we weren't tasked with any other missions. This left us with a unit that did a lot of dicking around. Some of our unit worked in a motor pool, and they likely did some real work, though... The stories I heard from that crew seem to indicate they didn't do much of anything either. There's a limit to the amount of fuckery one can engage in while deployed, but our unit seemed to take that as a challenge. The only people that were tasked with a real job were the ones doing convoys, and I decided I was too precious to do such a thing. We were in Kuwait, doing some initial training before moving into our full deployment into Iraq. Every unit ran through this training. Some of it was cultural sensitivity, some of it was very basic language, and some of it was weapons and convoy training. It was comprehensive and a good refresher for anyone about to finally hit the sand for real. That year was 2008. We were scheduled to be there from 2008 to 2009, and I was a quartermaster in chemical equipment repair in a maintenance company. We'll just call them the 217th. Generally, all names in this story have been changed, so that isn't the real unit's number, and so don't come at me for getting shit like that wrong. If you've got half a brain and a drive to dig, I'm sure you can pull out some actual details from this book. I'm just letting you know now, you're going to have to do that work for yourself. I was assigned to work our NBC office, our nuclear, biological, and chemical equipment, which was really a pile of shit that didn't work half the time, and that's being generous. I really hoped we didn't get gassed while we were in theater. Our first sergeant had misassigned me when I arrived at the unit, and Honestly, I wasn't going to complain. Working in the NBC room was relaxing when we were in Germany, and all in all, it wasn't a bad gig. At the time, I sort of knew we had a whole group of people in my MOS, that's Military Occupational Specialty, or my job, basically, who were working a repair shop, but I wasn't in the same platoon, so I flew under their radar. 
Anyway, that's really all background. We were in Kuwait, having finished our training and waiting around to get our final movement orders to take us to Iraq. They put together a list of personnel they thought would be good soldiers to undertake our unit's core mission, those convoy patrols. And they put me on the list. I was terrified. I was angry. Sullen. I look back at the mix of emotions and find myself reliving it. It makes me embarrassed and angry. I'd gotten married a few weeks before deployment to a woman who traveled halfway across the world to be with me, and I'd promised I wouldn't volunteer for anything dangerous. I kept that promise because I didn't volunteer for the convoy protection missions, but I still didn't want to do them. I hadn't joined the U.S. Army out of some fucking grand desire to be a patriotic warrior. I joined to get the GI Bill, to go to school, to learn language, and to set myself up for a career down the road. That said, I was being asked to take on these missions. And during our first meeting about the teams, one of our lieutenants asked if anyone had a problem with being on the CLP or Convoy Logistic Patrol or CLIP teams. For some reason, when given the chance to offer my opinion, I always give it. I might hold back, but I always ask why, or provide my point of view. Well, this time was no different. I didn't want to do these missions. I was the only asshole to raise my hand. I raised it, and I raised it high. Part of me regrets that decision to this day. Down the road, I'd realize I earned an enemy that would make my life shit when we got back to Germany. So, though on some level it felt like I dodged a bullet, this came back to bite me in the ass a half dozen times afterward. I don't regret it per se, but I recognize my lack of courage every time it comes up. The moment is etched into my memory. The sun had just set. Dust was starting to settle on everything around us. Half the people standing there were covered in dirt from a dust storm they'd been caught in. I could still taste the sand between my teeth as it hung in the air. Remembering this is making my heart race and my head hurt. The fear is still there, and the stink of sweat is like a spectral hand around my memory. After I'd raised my hand and asked to back out, another soldier came up saying he wanted to take my place. He was insistent that he wanted in on this mission. I told him I wasn't sure they'd go for it. He pushed the issue, and he told me he truly wanted to take my spot. I agreed. The moment I had a small twinge of guilt, but since I'm being brutally honest with you, myself, and the fucking page, it didn't last long. From there on out, I ignored every mention of my involvement with that mission, and I let him take the slot. At the time, I found myself saying, Well, he did ask. Thankfully, no one in our unit was hurt during those missions, so at least I don't have that sort of survivor's guilt hanging over me. I can't say what I'd be carrying with me now if something had happened to him. No one knows till that shit happens, right? I'll tell you, honestly and truly, to this day... And probably till the day I die, I'm going to feel like a coward for not following through and staying on the clip team. I hadn't volunteered. I'd simply been assigned to the mission. I'd have kept my promise, and I might not have been stuck in the hell in which I was eventually assigned. The MWR. What's the MWR? It stands for Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. The MWR is usually a building or a series of buildings designed to do exactly what's on the tin. I was assigned to a team that would staff this mission, including a computer center and gym, for 12 months. I had about a month reprieve where I got another mission, but 
I'll tell that story a little bit later on. The staff of the MWR were either useless or soldiers from other missions that were crazily overstaffed. The useless ones were barely what you'd consider soldiers. They made up about half the team, to be honest. The other half, I think, were there to keep an eye on the shitbags and make sure we were relatively busy, too. I was assigned there. I'm nearly 100% sure as punishment for not wanting to be on the clip missions. And at first, I wasn't really upset about it. There were a thousand reasons it wasn't a bad job, but the reasons it was shit outweigh the positives in the long run. Don't worry. The good thing about this story is that most of it are about the cans of rippet-flavored shit that was that experience. Chapter 4. Lost Ring Deep into the deployment, I'd lost quite a bit of weight. I was the lightest I'd ever been since my sophomore year of high school. The Army still considered me to be overweight at 171 pounds. That being said, I'd lost weight all over, gained a bit of muscle, but mostly slimmed down from a lot of running and a restriction in my diet overall. I wouldn't go so far as to claim I looked good, but I certainly felt better about my relative fitness level. That night I was walking from the MWR to use the bathroom. Usually I would just walk to the other side of the berm and use nature's toilet, but that night I wanted to use an actual toilet. So I walked the quarter mile or so to the block of them with real porcelain seats. Halfway there, I tripped over a metal mat outside of a chew that someone had set out to help clean mud off their boots. Thankfully, it was dry because I went down like a box of rocks. Worse, because I'd lost so much weight, my wedding ring flew off. The moment stretched out forever. My memory of it goes on even further. My wife and I bought our wedding bands on a whim. To say our courtship was anything conventional would require a straight-up lie. We got engaged on St. Patrick's Day during a leap year, and yes, my wife asked me. Such a thing is lucky. Over a decade on, things are going well, but we certainly did something right. Months later, we were walking down a side street in Bamberg, Germany, and we passed a jeweler's. I saw rings and suggested we buy some wedding bands. We bought simple steel rings, my wife set with a tiny diamond, and this was enough for us. That night in Iraq, I, I scrambled up and walked over to where I thought I'd seen the ring land. It wasn't there. I turned slowly around, scanning the ground, expecting to catch a glimpse of that simple steel band. My heart started to race. I couldn't find it. I swept the ground, moving inch by inch, not seeing anything. And I searched for a half hour before running back to the MWR. I need a flashlight. Who has a flashlight? I yelled urgently. The person behind the desk handed me one of several, but my brain was barely on at that point. I was stressed to a degree I really can't convey. All in all, my brain was a rush of shock, despair, and crushing fear. I rushed back to the area, calming, turning over rocks, sweeping areas of the ground with my feet and hands. In my head, I was screaming about how I was a terrible husband, the worst partner in the world. I would never live this down if I lost my ring. We'd been married for less than a year, and I was convinced I'd lost it. Finally, after two hours of frantic searching, I sat down on the deck I'd tripped on, and I looked down. Forlorn. And there, just to the right of where I was sitting, was my wedding ring. I grabbed it, slipped it on, and finally went to take a piss. I was nearly bursting by that point. After that, 
every night, I pissed on the side of that MWR. I wasn't going to waste my time walking to the nice toilets after that.